0: Welcome to the Michelle Tafoya Podcast, brought to you today by Genucell. We thank them for their sponsorship. Coming up, is it selfish to want to have children? To what extent will people go to have children in their lives? What is ethical? What is right? What is wrong? What is unjust? We're going to discuss it next. Now, it's the Michelle Tafoya Podcast. Well, of all places to start a really conservative movement about children, uh, Them Before Us was founded in Seattle, Washington, one of the most liberal cities on the planet. But Katie Faust is kind of an anomaly out there in Seattle in the great Pacific Northwest. She's the founder and president of Them Before Us, which she describes as a global movement defending children's rights to their mother and father. Listen to that again. A children's right to their mother and father. Katie Faust publishes, speaks, and testifies widely on why marriage and family are matters of justice for children. Her articles have appeared all over the place. USA Today, Newsweek, Public Discourse, The Federalist, uh, The Daily Signal, The Washington Examiner, The American Mind, The American Conservative. She also helped design the teen edition of Canavox, which studies sex, marriage, and relationships from a natural law perspective. Her next book, Raising Conservative Kids in a Woke City, is going to be released later in 2023. She's married to a pastor. They're raising four children, including one adoptive son. Um, so Katie Faust is going to join us, and we're going to talk about the selfish part of wanting to have kids. And does that hurt the children? This is a fascinating topic, and I really think you're going to enjoy this. Um, She and I don't agree on everything, but we have a lot in common. Ladies, look in the mirror. Are you seeing the dark spots? They are not going away on their own, no matter what anyone tells you. Introducing the dark spot corrector from GenuCell. Just in time for summer, the dark spot corrector with not one, but three cutting edge ingredients. It goes to work fast to target sunspots, dark spots, liver spots, and even old discoloration, both on your face and your hands. You are going to be amazed at how quickly you see results. You can enjoy your summer sun, go to the beach, go to the pool, go to barbecues without those embarrassing spots. With GenuCell, you'll see the results or your money back. No questions asked. So go to GenuCell.com right now to get your dark spot corrector with the new GenuCell most popular package now featuring summer essentials like the best-selling ultra-retinol moisturizer. I love this stuff. It's got a powerful retinol alternative for safe use in the summer sun. Visit GenuCell.com slash Michelle. With one L, M I C H E L E, right now for these amazing summer essentials and save over 70% off Genucel's most popular package. Do not wait. Order Genucel's most popular package right now. Free shipping, free returns, the best luxury skincare you've ever used, all at 70% off. Genucel, G E N U C E L.com slash Michelle. com slash Michelle. All orders will include a mystery luxury gift while supplies last so go to genucell.com dot com slash Michelle. Up next, Katie Faust. Is wanting children in your life, wanting to have children, is it selfish? This is fascinating. Stay tuned. Katie Faust, welcome. Again the founder and president of them before us. Why did you start this organization?
1: Because What I realized, especially when we started debating the definition of marriage, is that all of these conversations about marriage and family, Surrogacy, adoption, same sex parenting, divorce, cohabitation, polygamy, every single thing that has to do with marriage and family was obsessively focused on the desires of adults and what adults wanted. And it was always the kids that suffered when we got these questions wrong. And there was nobody formally advocating on their behalf. There was nobody representing their interests. These kids can't blog or file amicus briefs or hire lawyers to represent them. And they are the most wounded when we have these conversations that completely exclude their natural rights and their needs. So we started them before us because in the cultural conversations and in policy matters, we want to put them, the children, and their needs before adults in terms of our desires, our feelings, our identities, our emotions. So that's what we're seeking to do is center the child in all of these conversations about marriage and family.
0: An interesting word you just used, a couple of them, emotions and identities. And identity does seem to be a real emotional um, sort of a um, way to represent yourself these days. And so, you know, um, I know that you talk a lot about same-sex couples and whether or not they should be raising children or how they should find their children. Mm-hmm. Um, is there one specific topic in there that that to you is the most pressing at this moment when we've got, quite frankly, I mean, a massive discussion around parenting, kids, identity, all of that?
1: Well, certainly same-sex couples, especially um, same-sex couples who are creating children through surrogacy is probably the things that's hitting the headlines and surprising people the most you know that's probably the area where even on the right you go wait a second what is going on here like what are these two guys doing these two guys that have created 12 embryos and now their babies have barcodes and they get to select whether they want boys or girls implanted and all of that i mean that kind of shocks us and we go what 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 is this place that we've gotten to where we are purchasing children Mm -hmm. and and customizing them to go to a home that's going to be permanently motherless. But the reality is that the number of gay couples who are violating the rights of children pales in comparison to the number of heterosexual couples who are violating the rights of children either through um, cohabitation, which is very unstable and nearly always... An, on the vast majority of cases are going to lead to a breakdown in the family for the child. Um, Heterosexual couples that normalized no-fault divorce, which has wreaked havoc on a generation of kids, um, many of whom grow up and they say, I don't even know if I want to get married because marriage looks too risky to me. Because that marriage taught me that anybody can leave you for any moment, for any reason, and you'll never see it coming. And so, Why would I ever take the risk of getting married? I'll just shack up. I'll just hook up instead. And so while the headline grabbers does tend to be, you know, two men, three men, one man making a child through surrogacy, um, and that is a grave violation of children's rights, it puts them in risky situations. Really, if we are going to be looking at the rights and well-being of children, it's every adult, every adult, single, married, gay, straight, that has to bend to honor the rights of children. And I honestly think that conservatives have done, have shot themselves in the foot by not looking at every adult that violates the rights of kids and really just paying attention to these matters when it comes to the gays. Hi everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states.
0: Let's focus on this notion of the rights of kids. What are the rights of children that you're speaking to?
1: Well, it's a good question because, honestly, when you hear the term children's rights, especially people on our side, conservatives especially, they get some proper red flags because the other side has used the term children's rights in a way that really um, advances some damaging ideologies. If you Google children's rights, you're going to see children's right to sexual pleasure, their right to have a transgender identity hidden from their parents at school. Um, what we are talking about is not those rights, which is really just adult ideologies smuggled in under the guise of helping kids. We are talking about the indisputable natural rights that children have through looking at the natural world, looking at natural law, validated by social science and reinforced by the stories of children themselves. We are talking about their fundamental natural right to be known and loved by the two people responsible for their existence. So we spend quite a bit of time in the first chapter of our book explaining what is a natural right, and how do you know whether or not something is a natural right, and especially for our conservative friends linking a child's right to life to their right to their mother and father. So this is long-established um, ideas that have been pretty well-received in academia. What we're trying to do is we're trying to bring these principles to the layperson and then show what a child-centric world looks like as we evaluate all of these new issues and topics around marriage and family.
0: You know, we live at a time where we're asked to be more accepting, more tolerant of all kinds of relationships. But what I hear you saying is that accepting these relationships doesn't necessarily mean we should normalize bringing kids into these relationships. And You know, listen, I, this is where I experience a little bit of like a a pushback and I, and I want to have a civil discussion with you because I, I, I like what you're saying and I like your ideas. I'm going to just draw on my own experience because that's the only one I'm, I can relate to. Although I do have gay friends with, who are raising kids and all the rest. Um, but before I met my husband, I was entering my thirties. I really, really wanted children. Mm-hmm. I wanted children to to share my life with, to share my successes with, to bring a productive, happy person into the world. But I, I am hearing you say that as a single woman who would have then needed donor sperm, um, that wouldn't have respected the child's rights. Why not?
1: Yes. And so here's the problem with all of these different issues. You are running up against some of the greatest, honestly, naturally derived desires that adults have, the longing to be parents, the longing to form relationships, um, certainly people that are in struggling marriages. You know, I, when I'm not doing children's rights advocacy, my husband's a pastor and I'm in his office doing marriage counseling, right? With couples in our church or couples that have found our church that are really going through challenging situations. We are talking about some of the greatest burdens that adults are going to bear. Uh, you know, and you mentioned one of them, the the single woman who desperately would like to be married and have children, but hasn't found Mr. Right and knows her biological clock is ticking. I mean, you talk to women who struggle with infertility and they will tell you they can't think about anything else, right? Wow. So we are talking about some of the greatest struggles and ch- you talk to people with same-sex attraction who would be incredible parents, incredible mothers, incredible fathers. Here's the problem. An adult's desire for a family adult desire for children can never come at the expense of children's rights. Because really what you're saying is, in those situations, someone is going to do the hard thing. Is it going to be the adult or is it going to be the child? Is it going to be the single woman who desperately wants to have a family who then says, I'm going to forego this, or I'm going to find a way to pour out these maternal instincts in a way that doesn't violate the rights of children? Or is it going to be the child that grows up intentionally fatherless, struggling with identity issues because they were created through anonymous sperm, longing for experiencing the father hunger that children who are grow up without a dad seem to face, be disadvantaged because they don't have the male presence in their home, maximizing their gross motor skills, teaching them these um, principles of right and wrong that dads distinctively do when it comes to discipline in ways that moms don't do, right? Someone is gonna do the hard thing. At them before us, we think it's the adults who should do the hard thing. This idea that it's not going to be hard on the kids is a demonstrable lie. It's proven false through the decades of social science research that we have. Children need, deserve, and have a right to their own mother and father, and they are disadvantaged when they grow up without it. Sometimes through tragedy, that's impossible. But we're now moving into a world, both culturally and policy wise, that's normalizing, incentivizing and promoting mother and fatherless homes. And that's an injustice.
0: I'll go a little deeper into my own experience. When I did get married, we struggled with infertility for quite. It was I wouldn't wish it on anybody because it is awful. Um, we. We looked into having donor eggs because I was at 37 at this point and I, you know we knew what the problem was. Mm-hmm. So our, you know look, we thought long and hard about that. I'm thinking, this is some other woman's egg and my husband's sperm. and this seems weird to me, but I'm going to carry this child in my belly. I'm going to raise this child as my own. How is that so different from adoption?
1: Great question. You know, we spend quite a bit of time in chapter seven of our book, just discussing the challenges that children of donor sperm and donor egg, and I say donor because as you know, nobody's donating, you're purchasing, you're
0: selling. That's true.
1: You're choosing from a catalog. And so nobody's donating. This is a for-profit business, which stands in stark contrast to adoption, which generally is not for profit. But we spend quite a bit of time talking about and sharing the stories of kids who are created through donor gametes and the identity struggles they have, the feelings of commodification they have. You know, one woman said, in essence, my father paid $75 to stay out of my life forever. That's what he got for his 75 bucks. And those kids desperately long to know the identity of their donor parent, which they largely consider their biological parent. So in our world, it's so funny because we say, well, biology doesn't matter, right? Love makes a family. And yet a lot of women and men Reject adoption because they do want some kind of biological connection. They do want to carry the child themselves. They do want to have some kind of resemblance when it comes to the children they're creating. And yet we completely diminish the child's longing to know and be loved and connected to their own biological parents. And that's what we see from these kids is these protracted Internet searches to try to find the person that gave them their green eyes or their love of music or the one that, that is connected to their extended family, you know, 50% of which they don't know because there was this commercial transaction that cut them off from half of their biological identity. So I guess I would say, first of all, read the stories of kids who are created through these technologies and take a really good look at the kind of sh- burdens that they are carrying um, because of these technologies. We spend quite a bit of time talking about adoption in chapter nine, and much of that is contrasting adoption and what we call big fertility. So here's just a few ways that adoption is, exact, is the exact opposite of big fertility. First of all, in adoption, the child is the client. If adoption is successful, every child that needs a loving family is going to find one, but not every adult who wants a kid is going to get one. When I was the assistant director at the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world, it was our job to make sure that we screened carefully adults that wanted a child. Adoption costs money, not because you are paying for a baby, but because you are screening adoptive parents at multiple levels of government Mm -hmm. in multiple different agencies in multiple different ways. It's actually illegal to pay a birth parent or a birth mother for their child. But that's what happens in reproductive technology. You are paying the genetic mother. You are paying the birth mother. You are paying the birth father for a child. That's what's going on. So you're violating the rights of children in that sense that money's not supposed to change hands. There's a recent case of a couple in from New Jersey whose baby was stuck in Mexico um, because they used a surrogate. It was his sperm. It was was a donor egg. And the Mexican court wouldn't let the baby travel because... the situation was indistinguishable from child trafficking. That is really what you've got in a lot of these big fertility arrangements. Another huge aspect of this, of course, is there is no screening or vetting. A lot of people we already have documented cases of people who acquire children through reproductive technologies, especially surrogacy, who would never have passed an adoption background check. Right? That the check that has to clear is the check at the bank. It's right. ver- there's no kinds of verifications for people that are bringing unrelated children into their homes, which Uh, in adoption is very, you know, something we pay attention to. uh,
0: You know, we finally did have our son miraculously through no, through no, you know, nothing medicinal. It just happened miraculously. And then we said, you know what, now we get to adopt and we, we decided to adopt a child and I will verify Everything you've just said, the number of hoops we needed to jump through, the number and types of background checks we needed to go through. There was documentation I had never heard of in my life that we needed to put together this dossier on our lives. And I never resented it because right. I thought this is, you know, I thought to myself, my husband, and I kind of joked about this a, a number of times. We, we called it adoption boot camp as we went through all the procedures, but I thought, you know, if every prospective parent had to go through this mm-hmm. kids would be a lot safer and there would be a lot, you know, the, like there are so many parents out there who, by the way, come by their children biologically with they spouse who aren't good parents mm-hmm. um, who would, as you said, never pass through these, these background mm-hmm. checks, but by your kind of um, theory It's still better for the child to be in a home where both biological parents are present. I mean, is that true even if the dad is beating the mom on a regular basis and then later abusing the child?
1: Yeah, great question. So, actually, one of the reasons why it's so important to safeguard children's right to their mother and father is for the sake of safety. Um, That when you look at family structure, um, the safest home is the home of a child's own married biological mother and father. Does that mean that there's no ad- abusive biological parents? Oh, there are. And they deserve massive amounts of criminal consequences. The problem is that when you look at any other family structure, single parents, single parents with a stepmother or a stepfather, single coha- or cohabiting parents that are not married, mothers who are living with an unrelated boyfriend, um, all you see is rates of abuse that skyrocket. And I often challenge people, you know, if the idea is kids don't need biological parents, they just need to be safe and loved, or they just need a, a mom and dad, it doesn't matter, or any two will do, they just need two parents in the home. I challenge people to Google the, the words mother's boyfriend, because there the child has a mother and a father figure, two parents in the home, you know, two incomes, more adults to love them. I mean, all of that. But what you see is a, an unrelated man that is living with a child is the most dangerous person in a child's life. It is statistically the person who is most likely to neglect and abuse them. And it's undisputed. And so safety is actually one of the primary reasons why children's right to their mother and father needs to be defended. Um, In cases where the father is beating the mother, 100% criminal, courts, everybody needs to come down on the side of the innocent. But the reality is that I've talked to several court appointed special attorneys that advocate on behalf of foster kids and ask them how many of these kids that you represent had to be removed from the home of their married biological mother and father. And the answer between the three of them that I've talked to is anywhere from 5% to 0%. Like we would wipe out cases of children who need to be removed from a home. If all of them were being raised by their married biological mother and father, why biology affords a measure of child protection that simply intending to parent or being interested in the child's parent will never give a kid. And unfortunately, that is either the result of an evolutionary process or just straight-up sin nature. But either way, it is undisputed that a child's own biological parents are the most invested in, connected to, and protective of a child. And we give reams of evidence for that in our book. Uh, I, that
0: That's interesting. I, I think um, people should probably take a look at the book and and – if they're interested in this topic, which if you're listening to this podcast, you obviously are. Let's take the case of friends of mine who um, I mentioned to you, we went through adoption. I have a friend who was adopted, Mm -hmm. um, happens to be gay, is married to another woman, and they are raising a son together. Mm -hmm. And it, from what I can tell, it seems to be going well. What are the risks being posed to this child that they're raising, a child who was adopted by them because he was unwanted by his biological parents?
1: Well, ideally, children who are adopted are going to be adopted into a home where there's a mother and a father who are married to each other. So they get the benefits of maternal love and paternal love because those things do different things for kids. Men and women offer distinct and complementary benefits to child development but also it satisfies their longing. Like kids don't just want to be loved by adults in general. They long for a man to love them and a woman to love them. We give about a couple dozen stories of kids in chapter six of our book who were denied a mother or father raised by two moms or raised by two dads who just talk about the hunger they have to be loved by somebody of the sex that's missing from their home. So depending on the age, um, very, I think there's a possibility that that boy, even if he is well-loved by his two moms, will start to gravitate to the men in his life, coaches or teachers or grandfathers or uncles, because he longs for and deserves and needs male affection. And two moms, 10 moms, will never be able to give him that male affection. Um, also, there's developmental drawbacks. He statistically has two adults in his life who are saying, be fair, be nice, be safe. He does not have the person in his life who has a larger body, higher levels of testosterone, higher levels of vasopressin, right? Who is offering the competitive, aggressive uh, instincts of go higher, go bigger, go stronger, work harder, right? Dads tend to bring that in ways that moms don't bring that. And so there is a developmental disadvantage for kids in those situations, And Some people
0: would say there are going to be some people, you know, this Katie, who are going to say, yeah, but that's masculine toxicity. You know, that's toxic masculinity, I guess, is the term. And so the less of that we have, the better.
1: Well, then you can just look at the disproportionate rates of men who end up in prison because they didn't have a father. 70 to 85 Mm percent of inmates right now had no father in their home. Many of them probably had very dedicated mothers. Um, Fathers wrestle with children in ways that mothers simply do not. And that teaches children to channel their competitiveness and aggressiveness. Toxic masculinity is not the product of dads, it's the product of absent dads. And that's pretty undisputed in the social science literature, that fathers advantage children in ways, especially when it comes to channeling their aggressiveness and competitiveness. So children do need a mom that disproportionately lands on the side of be nice, play fair, be safe. But they also need a dad that says, especially to young boys, you have these urges, you have this this longing to conquer and dominate. Here's how you channel that well. Mm-hmm. And children who grew up without a dad don't have that. Now, I will say that I have friends who are lesbians that adopted an unwanted child that no other no other heterosexual Christian couple was willing to, to go and adopt because she had significant special needs. And I have an adoption background. They said, will you go with us? Because this is going to be rough. And I said, hell yes, I'm going with you. Right. Because they were, they really were rescuing a child. Now, I don't think that those two moms are communicating to their kid, you don't need a dad. I think they are communicating. We were blessed enough to be able to bring you into our home. Mm-hmm. Um, And I don't know how they're going to phrase it, but the reality is nobody else would. And so sometimes a same-sex couple may be the right placement for a child. Um, But that is not to say that we should diminish the reality that mothers and fathers uniquely contribute to child development.
0: You mentioned an interesting term earlier that I want to get back to. And we've heard about big pharma and you talk about big fertility. What does that mean?
1: I didn't coin the phrase. Um it was a documentary put out for by the Center for Bioethics and Culture that profiled several women who served as surrogates um, for a variety of different couples. But really that's what this is. This is an industry. This is not a benevolent nonprofit that is focused on the well being of children. This is an industry that seeks to deliver a child product to any adult, regardless of the cost to the child, whether it's the cost to the child's life. You know, IVF, I I don't know if you had to encounter these kinds of realities when you were going through the process, but IVF is not a child-friendly process. Only about 7% of babies created in a Petri dish will be born alive. Many of them are discarded. They don't make the grade and discarded. They're frozen Permanently, they won't survive the thaw. The transfer, they'll be selectively reduced if too many take. You know that is aborted between twelve and twenty weeks. I mean, in this industry, abortion is very prevalent. It functions as both quality control and quantity control. Um, and so, many children lose their life in big fertility's hands. The ones that don't very often lose their right to their mother and or father through this process. And big fertility doesn't care about the well being of children. They care. About about their success rates, and which means increased payments and increased customers. And so this is an industry that absolutely violates all of the best practice of adoption law. You know, one of the things I did at the adoption agency is I was responsible for compliance with international adoption standards. All of them are violated when it comes to big fertility. We have the most widely ratified treaty in the world, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child that says that children have a right to be known and loved and raised by both parents. This is something signed by every nation in the world except the United States over parental rights concerns. Big fertility flies in the face and violates all of these principles laid out in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. It is an industry that is built on disregarding the rights and well-being of kids.
0: It is interesting to look at it as an industry. And quite frankly, I hadn't before only because I was a participant and the desperation my husband and I felt. Uh, we wanted a family so badly and my age was the thing standing in the way of that. And so, um, you know, we got, I, I get a little emotional talking about it because we did get so lucky in finally having my son. And then we made this trek. You know, to South America to adopt our baby girl. She was three months when she was adopted. She knows she's she was adopted. She knows she w- grew up in a you know was was a product of another woman's belly. She knows these things. She feels proud of her home country. Mm-hmm. From what I've read in some of your articles, she may feel some loss if if because she does not know her biological mom and dad. What do you say to parents like me who have adopted a child who may never meet her biological parents?
1: Well, I'm an adoptive mom too. We adopted our son from China because I speak Chinese and we love the Chinese people and we can give him a connection to his heritage. Whether or not I will ever go back, unfortunately, is up in the air with the current government, but we would long for him to be able to have as many connections to his birth country as possible. And someday if the technology exists, meet his mother and father. Um, what we tell him is you are, you are a Faust forever. You belong with us. You are a gift to us, Mm -hmm. but I also don't pretend that I can fully compensate for everything that he's lost. There are questions he has that I will never be able to answer. And, um, while he is very secure in our home, there have been questions that have bubbled up through the years where I haven't been. I, I, I say, I just don't know the answer to that. I'm sorry. I don't know why you were relinquished. I don't know the identity of your birth parents because in China, it's illegal to abandon your child. So birth parents are very careful to leave no identifying information. So there's so many questions that I cannot answer for him. But what I can do is mourn with him. I can be sad with him. And that's probably the biggest difference between adoptive parents and people that are creating children through third parties adoptive parents are seeking to mend the wound that their adoptive children have experienced. We don't, we don't deny that our kids have lost something. We don't deny that they are in a place where they had to lose their first family to join our family. You can admit that you don't need to diminish it. You can be honest with your child. If they experience sadness, you know, when my son says, why did my mom leave me in a box in the middle of the square? In November, and I say, I don't know, but it makes me really sad. Does mm-hmm. it make you sad? And we can enter into our children's loss because we didn't inflict it, because we're seeking to mend it. Children who are created through sperm donation, egg donation, surrogacy, if they were to say, Who is my dad? Where is my mom? Does she know that I exist? Do I look like her? Does she think about me? What about my grandparents? What about my half brothers and sisters? Do they know about me? They're going to be talking to the adults who inflicted their loss. They're talking with the adults who chose for that parent to never have any role in their life at all. And what that means is, children created through third-party reproduction carry a greater psychological burden than adoptees. And the only we, we
0: have we have the data for that.
1: There's one study that compares outcomes between children created through sperm donation who were raised by a biological parent and adoptees who were raised by neither biological parent. And the adoptees fare better on the psychological outcomes. And I think it's because they're not alone in their suffering, but children created through third parties very often are.
0: Let let me just touch on surrogacy while we still have a few minutes here. Because if you take, for instance, if my issue had been one where we needed a surrogate, You'd still have my husband's sperm, my egg, just a different womb in for which, you know, that, that embryo would grow, in Perfect. which that embryo would grow. How is, you know, if it's a friend who says, I will do this for you because you desperately want this child and you're just, you don't have a hospitable womb, mm-hmm. how is that... Um, does that fit into the big pharma model you're talking about, or is 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 that something that that's that where the child still knows and is going to be raised by its biological parents?
1: Yeah. The best way to understand what surrogacy is is surrogacy takes what should be one woman, mother, and splices her into three purchasable and optional women. So the first one is the genetic mother that contributes the egg. Maybe in your scenario, you've got that right? Or maybe you don't have an egg that's viable or neither of the intended parents have an egg to contribute. So you would purchase one from a catalog. The second one is the birth mother, right? The woman that gestates the child and bonds with the child for the first nine and a half months of their life. And the third one is the social mother, the daily maternal presence that advantages children by being the female parent in the home and doing all the things that women naturally do that men simply don't do as well as women do. So surrogacy says, which of these three do you need? Which do you not have? Which one do you need to pay for and arrange? Which one are you just going to like do with, do without completely, right? So for like the two men or the one man or the three men or whoever it is that are using surrogacy, they would say, we're going to purchase the egg, we're going to rent the womb, and we're going to disregard the role of the social mother completely right? So the child loses all three. There's some situations, right? Where, you know, if you were looking at an egg donor, you would say, I need a genetic mother, but I'll be the birth mother and the social mother, right? Then you've got the situation you just proposed, which is we can contribute the egg. We're going to raise the child ourselves. We just need the birth mother, right? So here's the thing. Anytime all three of the children need all three, none of these three women are optional in the life of a child. The genetic mother contributes the child's biological identity, right, which helps children answer the question, who am I? The birth mother lays the foundation for bonding and attachment and trust. And when that is severed, very often these kids have to start, they don't very often, they do need to start from ground zero in terms of trust and attachment. And adoptees have long referred to this as a primal wound. There's a book written called Primal Wound that talks about how this loss of a child's only relationship on the day that they were born has led to increased difficulties when it comes to trust and attachment in their own life. And the data bears that out because like you said, adoptive parents actually have more stable marriages, right? You're like, if everybody had to go through the screening, wow, right? They have more stable marriages. They tend to be more highly educated. They tend to be more wealthy and they even tend to spend more time with their children than the average biological parent. And yet, adoptees tend to have higher levels of struggle academically, more externalizing disorders, largely because they would say, I, I had to die in some ways, by when I lost my first parent and then begin anew, when all other babies had this nine month advantage. You know, I, I don't know about you, but when I had my children biologically, they immediately put the baby on my chest. Mm -hmm. and immediately the baby calmed down. Mm -hmm. And we don't put babies on the chests of random strangers so they can form a bond. Mm -hmm. We put them on their mother's chest because they have an existing bond. And there's something about that bond that matters when it comes to long-term trust and attachment. So the answer to your question of what about the heterosexual couple using their own egg, their own sperm, they're going to take the child home and raise the child, you still lose that critical foundation of, of bonding and attachment. And it's interesting because... When you talk to women who are carrying their own child and say, are you bonding with that baby? Are you feeling protective? They're like, hell yes, get, get away from me. I yeah,
0: yeah. Here. Right? Yeah.
1: And we understand that from the mom's perspective, even though the mom has dozens or hundreds of other relationships, and yet we expect the child to simply to be able to disconnect from the only relationship they have with no consequences. So the reality is that surrogacy, whether it's commercial, altruistic, whether it's going to the genetic parents or unrelated parents, it always asks the child to give something up that they have a natural right to and that developmentally advantages them. And surrogacy in all cases insists that children do hard things for adults. So for the children's rights defender, the answer is no. Even though that means that adults may not get something they desperately, desperately want. Adults do not ask kids to sacrifice for them. And surrogacy always does that.
0: You raised some really fascinating points and many that I had never thought of before I started looking at uh, them before us. You can find them on the web and um, you can find the book. Um, I guess my final question would be, it seems to me the toothpaste is out of the tube. We've got this industry, as you describe it, this, you know, sort of niche industry of of creating human life for people who want to be parents, who desperately want to be parents. And maybe that desperation is taken advantage of. I, I, I don't know. Oh, well, it but, is. Okay. So is the toothpaste out? There's no really going back from this. Is there?
1: Well, first of all, I want to say, I really appreciate you having me on. I really appreciate you asking the questions, bringing up your personal background. These are not small issues. This is not inconsequential stuff. This is the biggest things that adults are going to deal with, but it's also the biggest thing that children are going to deal with, right? And in this metric, someone is going to sacrifice. We just don't think it should be the kids. So what do we do in terms of this industry? I would say we got to get very clear about who children are and what they need right now, because we are on the cusp of moving way beyond donor egg, donor sperm, and surrogates. We are now talking about artificial wombs, robot nannies, right? China's working on both of those. We're talking about technologies that will edit genes, right? That's already happened in some way. You can edit custom, literally custom order your kids, not just here's 12 embryos. Do you want boys? Do you want girls? Do you want black hair? Do you want green eyes? What do you want, right? We are talking about editing our future children. Um, we already are in a place where we are mass producing multiple surplus embryos. We've got about a million frozen babies on ice in this country right now because of the IVF surplus in embryo creation. We are now looking at laws that are going to be mandating insurance coverage for IVF use for anybody that wants them, Mm -hmm. not just medically infertile couples, but singles, same-sex couples, throuples, all of that with unlimited IVF transfers, which means unlimited embryo creation. I mean, We have got to understand very clearly right now who children are, what they need, what they have a right to, what will harm them, what will advantage them. And we've got to get it straight right now with the technology we already have because we are not far from factory floors of artificially created children completely disconnected from a female body um, to gestate and customize the way that we want. So... I don't know if the toothpaste can go back from a, a rational perspective, maybe not. But what we are talking about is the commodification of humans on a, ma- a scale that we probably have never seen before in our species. And the only way to fight back against it is to understand who children are and advocate on their behalf.
0: I'm amazed that you're doing this in the great Pacific Northwest. You're out of Seattle, Washington, and it just seems like the most unlikely place for this organization to have found its roots. But there you are. And I truly appreciate your perspective on all of this. And um, I'm sure there will be other issues that we'll want to talk with you again. So I hope you'll come back.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: She's Katie Faust, um, founder and president of Them Before Us, really focusing on children's rights, and you can find them uh, on the web, thembeforeus.com. I am Michelle Tafoya. As always, be brave and do good.